Well, that brings us to the magic time of 3.30, and we welcome Jacob Banks back in studio today for another edition of Music 101. And Jacob, what else? What else could we possibly I be know. talking about this week the other whole than the Resurrection town Symphony? town is a buzz, right? <laughs> I mean, so it's, true. It's so funny. We <laughs> see, I'll see sometimes symphony musicians who don't live in town will sort of hang around the music building at Augie using the practice rooms or whatever, and it's always sort of fun. I, on, on Monday or Tuesday, I think it was, I mean the big the big truck is is they're loading it up to get the equipment. I mean it really feels like the circus is in town. I mean in a good way. You know, it's not like a it's not a circus, but it's like there's just this big, you know, I mean with Mahler, it's a, it's a it's a true investment of human and and uh acquired resources. I mean it, the whole thing is just so it's exciting. How could we not? What are we going to talk about instead, right? <laughs> right. I mean, we did have the Pattersons here the other day, which was fun. I oh hope your listeners gosh, tuned in, yes. but you know, but that that was then and this is now and and uh, Mahler, Mahler 2 is looming. Yeah, it's going to kind of take over today. So hope you're ready to have a nice uh, discussion as Jacob sort of breaks down some things about the Mahler second. Yeah, I mean, this is going to close out the symphonies 2015-2016 season. Yes. So, of course, we're expecting a big work. Right. And I don't think they come much bigger than the Mahler second. You know, I was looking at a, a breakdown of what's required for orchestra, for choir, you know, two soloists. Right. I mean, this is a, a work that is truly immense in size. Again, uh, John Hurdy, uh, yeah. who's directing the Quad City Choral Arts and the Handel Oratorio Society members who are singing in the group, was over here yesterday and, you know, talking about his role in getting everybody ready to sing. And as you look at putting all these pieces together, you can't help but be awed. It's amazing. Again, by, again, the size, the scope, and the substance of this particular work. Absolutely. And I feel like, I mean, there are works that have larger orchestras or larger choruses, but it's really just a matter of degree. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, there's there's five flutes doubling piccolo rather than four flutes. You're right. I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's something about Mahler too that is kind of like... It's the max. I mean, you could, you know, he adds his big fat hammer in Mahler 6, you know, I mean, the, so the, there are things you can kind of add, but it, it, it is on a scale which it, everything that is at a similar scale sounds like Mahler 2. Well, it kind of struck me, you know, that you say that, that this is sort of like an extreme symphony because it he is. started off with a one movement standalone work that right. was a symphonic poem and then he decided no i think i want to add some more to it so over time it sort of took on these different forms so it's a symphony it's part choral symphony it's part oratorio i mean this is about as extreme as a work gets for it's, this time period it's it's absolutely amazing i i mean really i don't really we say we'll do music 101 i mean all season i've been looking forward to the music 101 where we cover Mahler too and yet it's really hard to know exactly where to start because he 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 was such a, a fascinating figure a polarizing figure in his day um not always the, the nicest person in the world gave all kinds of contradictory statements about his own work and about his life and then he died and we have what is called the alma problem which is so much of that we know biographically about him was known through his widow alma Mahler, who was known for burning certain parts of diaries and sort of mm -hmm. taking notes and the things that she sort of allowed to circulate made her look very good and made him look very tortured and so he it's it's, it's just really hard to know where to start so i thought maybe i thought maybe we would start um, with the first movement and then we'll we'll, you know, we'll listen to kind of like the what i want the audience to listen our audience to listen to is and I bring this up. In fact, I just came from a lesson with a with a composer, first year composer at Augustana, where I went through the same thing. But listen for the first real chord change. 
and this is something in general, I hope everyone's going to Mahler. I mean, you all have your tickets, so I won't even tell you to get them. But one of the great things for people who, who there's, a, and we'll sort of close out the session with like listening tips for people who may not have been, maybe you went to Mahler 3 a couple seasons ago at QCSO, which was, which is also a great symphony, but of a very different type. And so we'll give a couple listening tips for people who are listening through um, for the first time, maybe your first experience with Mahler. But one of them is, is listen for the chords. And not so much like, oh, that's a four chord in the relative minor key or whatever. That's not really what I'm going for because the harmony is so palpable. In fact, he goes on in what I would consider to be like the same chord for a good almost minute. And then he had, and it sort of sounds like a five chord and it sort of sounds like a one chord and you can't, can't really tell. And then, and then it happens. And then, yeah. <laughs> so... I'm going to have a lot to say about this opening minute or so of Mahler 2, but the number one thing I would encourage people to listen for is where is there really a change of chord and what is its effect and then what sort of like chain of events happens after it happens. And I will say that if you're wondering if the chord has changed, it probably hasn't. It's just little neighbor tones. Just, you know, like little, here's a little extra decoration on it. But it's this sort of big 5-1, 5-1, not really sure which one. And then there's this moment that you just, there's no arguing that things have changed. And then we have this sort of chain reaction. So this is the beginning of the first movement of Mahler's Second Symphony. There it was. And if you listen carefully, and I don't want to get too technical, but basically, again, we have this kind of 5-1 thing. And so it's sort of, you know, dum, dum is the big, it, of course, every symphony has that. That's how the timpani are tuned. And so you've got this. But he sort of starts to add these neighbors, these neighbor tones. Like there's a little bit of scale degree 2 and a little bit of scale degree 6. And they kind of, what they end up doing at that big horn moment, is, and the trumpets come in there too, 
it's like they – no, the trumpets don't actually. The trumpets come in later. But there's this horn moment where they start this crescendo and then and then all those neighbor tones become the chord. And it's like this – you know. and I, I was teaching it to my student actually because we think of dissonance, chords like that, as being strong. Mm-hmm. Like you use dissonance and it's a very strong thing. But in fact, you act, dissonance is not acoustically self-supporting. I won't go into the, exactly the details of what that means, but basically, when you have a consonance, all these unisons, you know, fives and one chords, you know, they're, it, it pretty much like reinforces itself because of, you know, overtones. I, again, we won't get too technical, but the point is, when you have it, this dissonant chord, like he's building up, he builds it up by introducing each note like a little bit separately, and then all of a sudden, the horns come in and they have this big fat crescendo, and then every, da, 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 everything sort of cycles down from there. Now, this whole opening, you know, and I, I'm indebted as always because a, a, a person I rely on uh, for so much of my insight into this music is uh, Richard Truskin, who's a fantastic musicologist and writes really accessibly and really intelligently about all of this. But, you know, he points to uh, no fewer than three references to Beethoven's symphonies in this opening section. Of course, we have the, you know, the opening tremolo, uh, which is just like Beethoven 9, of the visuals of all this big fat choir sitting there at the beginning of a symphony who's not singing yet. So, of course, that's another reference to Beethoven 9. You've got the the funeral march um, from Eroica, uh, and you've got, of course, the great key of C minor, which is Beethoven 5. So there's, it's funny because there's all these nods to the symphonic tradition. Um, and yet there's almost this sense of like a nod and then it's like, but check this out, guys. But I'm going out in my own it direction. Is. It's, like, yeah. well, it's almost like, <laughs> that was cool, but... And then it's like, it, it's almost like this supersede, like, like here's how I shall supersede all these things that have happened because, you know, with Beethoven and his Ninth Symphony and, and the chorus, it was just kind of like this, it was such a huge thing. And then Brahms, sort of the next great German symphonist, uh, Bruckner too, uh, but sort of put the damp on that. Like Brahms says, no choral symphonies, and I don't believe Bruckner does either. I, I I don't know. I'm not an expert in Bruckner. He doesn't. No. Okay. So so there you know th- there's that, and then so Mahler brings it back with a vengeance, uh, and really I mean, and this is what's amazing is there's not a German symphonist after him. Really, the 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 great the great symphonies that are to come later in the century are from from very different places in the world. Many of them uh, from the United States. But he's sort of like this great twilight to this German tradition and therefore sort of all-encompassing. So there's all these nods. So any audience member who's more familiar perhaps with the works of Beethoven than you are with the works of Mahler, realize Mahler knew as much about those as you do and heard them as much as you have. Uh, and and so much of his work sort of nods to them, and yet there is this sort of sense that he is transcending them and so elevating us all to this new and exciting Plane. Yeah, so in a way, it was it was kind of a musical evolutionary point for right. a choral symphony or a symphony with chorus in it. Because, uh, yeah, when I was reading about this, and he he started off writing this Totenfire, the funeral yeah. rites, which yep. is the first movement, and then he looked back at it and he thought, this really needs to be flushed out. What else could I do? Uh, you have to think that he clearly had in mind looking at Beethoven's Ninth no Symphony, question. and and I no love question. the fact that he brings this up too. That yeah, not only was he looking at it, but there's several distinct references to nods that he gives to Beethoven. No question, and it's so it's very funny too because and and we'll talk. Let's talk a little bit about Mahler as a person. Um, one of the most important things to to know about him, of course, was that he was p- perhaps the most important conductor of his day, and he held all kinds of important posts. I mean, you look at, uh, as Truscan points this out, his resume 
from 1880 onward, it's just like this meteoric rise. And he's just conducting everywhere, and he eventually gets appointed the director of Metropolitan Opera and the New York Phil sort of simultaneously. Uh, but really his claim to fame, his, his, big, you know, his, his big appointment was the Vienna State Opera. And, and opera in general. Like, mm-hmm. he started out in operetta. And so he he's, was sort of the opera uh, composer or the opera conductor, and yet he never wrote an opera. He he tried and failed, and then as sort of like, a, like he was having an affair with, I think, with uh, Carl Maria von Weber's granddaughter or something, and as a, as a, as a gift to her, completed uh, one of Weber's un, in, uh, incomplete operas. But he had no actual opera of his own. And and that wasn't that wasn't by accident. I mean, I, I, my colleague Daniel Culver surmises he and I had a great talk about this that perhaps he saw he saw enough failures in opera to realize that all that work to go into it may not end up end up amounting to sort of what you want. I mean, it's a reaping big, the kind of benefits that right, that extraordinary that is, investment would it's take. It's just yeah. crazy. Uh-huh. And also, there was an ideology behind it. I think. I mean, as much as he admired Wagner, he saw the symphony as the art form of the future. Because no matter how how symbolic a plot for an opera, it was still too boxed in. Mm-hmm. It was still too much the story, and people were too concerned with the story. And that's another thing I want to talk about, Mahler. Again, we could we could do six music 101s. But another thing I want to talk about is, okay, so what is he trying to express through all this music? Because we know you've already mentioned that this is a funeral march. Um, n- not my funeral. Uh, you know, I mean, I would not. Have, this is not how I would sort of. It is clearly the funeral march of like a great hero. Um, in fact, and I'll read to you a little bit of, of, of a hint of who that might have been. Some people, um, well, the stories abound. But basically, Mahler had a long-time struggle. Um, this is why you should always be skeptical when composers speak about their own music. He had a lifelong struggle with knowing how to talk about this music in order to uh, invite people in and yet not be the same thing that an opera plot was, which is just like, oh, well, there's this is where the elves run over the mountains and this is where, you know, that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff. He, he, he didn't want to do that. And he referred to these programs he would write, like these sort of descriptive things, similar to Symphony Fantastique. I mean, there's plenty of precedents for this and also the symphonic poems of Liszt and all the symphonic poems that happened in the 19th century. He, he, he described it as a map of the stars by which to navigate. Mm. So, so, so yeah. wow, so color exactly. You're like, um, if you say so, and and yet it's so like chilling them. and amazing. Yeah, I mean, he would put these programs out there, but then he would always withdraw them after a certain point of time too. Almost like he was giving you that brief window into what he might have been thinking, and then went, oh, you didn't see it, didn't catch it. I've changed my mind. He would have been a very bad Twitter user. <laughs> I mean, people are always sort of like capturing that controversial tweet before he gets. Yeah. So I will. I'll actually read for you what his original program was uh, for the first movement, but this was never published. Ultimately, when he went to the program, I'll read you ultimately what he later wrote, and then I will read uh, third what he wanted ultimately later decide would be the most. So he wrote this. This was just handwritten that he wanted. He wanted this to be the program. This is an explanation of the music we just heard. This is your map of the stars, folks. We stand by the coffin of a well-loved person. His life, struggles, passions, and aspirations once more for the last time pass before our mind's eye. And now in this moment of gravity and of emotion which convulses our deeper being, when we lay aside like a covering everything that from day to day perplexes us and drags us down, our heart is gripped by a dreadfully serious voice which, is, which always passes us by 
by in the deafening bustle of daily life. What now? What is this life and this death? Do we have any existence beyond it? Is all this only a confused dream, or do life and death have a meaning? And we must answer this question if we are to live on. That's what he wrote down for the first, you know, it wasn't enough to write like a spectacular orchestral movement, but this is sort of what he said. And in, in many ways, I, I recall um, Liszt, Le Prelude, you know, what mm-hmm. is life but a prelude to an unknown hymn, the first tone of which is intoned by death. I mean, yes, so there's certainly, yeah. there's lots of precedent for this kind of thing, but he didn't want that published. He's like, you know what, oh, it's too much like, you know, uh, Siegfried and Zieglinda and all this, like too much, too, TMI, okay, mm-hmm. TMI Mahler. <laughs> so ultimately, this is what he put, this is what he he put in in the uh, later program um uh i have named the first movement funeral rite and if you are curious it is the hero of my d major symphony you'll recall the first symphony of Mahler, if you know it's a spectacular piece uh the titan uh which is sort of like the life of a hero uh it is the hero of my d major symphony that i am burying here and whose life i am gathering up in a clean mirror from a higher vantage point at the same time, it is a great question. Why have you lived? Why have you suffered? Is, it all this, is all this merely a great, horrible jest? We must resolve these questions somehow or other if we are to go on living, indeed, even if we are only to go on dying. Once this call has resounded in anyone's life, he must give an answer, and that answer I give in the last movement. So actually, that wasn't a program note. That was something from a letter. But you get so some, a lot of similar themes. What is the meaning of life? What it, what is actually life? And 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 you know what happens after, after death? Life, right. Yeah. Uh, and in he says we life. just have to deal with this question if we're going to move on from from this funeral. So I will I will read for you now uh, what ultimately Mahler preferred uh, to be for the program notes for this. And done. That's it. <laughs> Empty. Silence. He wanted nothing, actually. Ultimately, he sort of withdrew this, and then he'd sort of, like, give a pro. And he did this a lot of his symphonies. He'd just, like, get, put a program out there, and then, like, like pull it back and, like, qualify this part. And it's like, well, maybe it's autobiographical, and maybe the first and second. And, and it's all this, you know... And partly it's like marketing. You know, I mean, I made this joke with the, symf- with the symphony audiences uh, at the Elgar concert when I had a pre-concert talk about that is like, well, what do you think the enigma is? And I'm like, it's called communication and marketing. You know, your, your, your publisher is like, okay, yeah, variations on an original theme sounds like a snooze fest, but like, what if there was an enigma? And I could just see the people in the, in the, in the, Ooh, Ooh, that's really good. We'll keep them guessing. And, you know, I see, I see uh, Elgar with, you know, with his, his Edwardian, you know, mustache going, Oh yes, yes, of course. Yes, yes. There's an enigma. There's quite an enigma. Quite an enigma. So in many ways it keeps people guessing and that is sort of sexy and that gets people to think about your mute. So there's a degree to which that is, you know, that that, that may be playing a part in this. But honestly, in Mahler's case, he really was, you know, struggling with these concepts of life and death. And he really saw symphonic music as being the ultimate place where he could ask and answer those questions. That's, that's what I kind of wondered in thinking about this and, and now hearing you talk about it was uh, what, what was, did Mahler sort of have second thoughts after he threw all this stuff out there and then felt like he wanted to back himself up a little bit because either A, as you mentioned, he felt it was TMI. He right. he felt like he'd maybe exposed too much of his own questions right. to public scrutiny and he didn't want that to put that much of himself out there. Right. Or was he worried that it would somehow color 
audience's perceptions of experiencing this music. And and again, you know, you walk that fine line as a composer between I do it all the time. trying to share what you want to communicate in this music with the audience without getting in the way of how they're going to experience it. And it, I tell you, I mean, you know, I, I don't share Mahler's temperament. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, he and I are very different. You know, our personalities are quite different. I, I probably have maybe a little bit less mystical approach to my orchestral music than he does, but I still struggle with the same thing, which is how do you give your, you know, it, it isn't about the music. It's about like the extra things that you give, the program notes or titles. Uh, how do you reveal enough to an audience for them to realize that there's something to be unearthed there? Especially a new piece, right? Because people mm-hmm. don't, you know, who, who who trusts this crazy guy? You know, variations on an original theme, right? What is yeah. that? You know, it's, I think it's bad for Elgar. It's worse for me. But the the other problem is, is like, but then you give so much away and they're just like, oh, yeah, I heard all your friends. You know, they sounds just like that person you know. You know, and, and in many ways it's so limiting. Uh, and and this gets back into very old discussions in the 19th century about you know, the superiority of absolute music and you know these these are you know the Wagner Brahms debates. I mean, it he it's a culmination of a, a lot of anxiety. You know, the 19th century, you know, 20th too, just time of of incredible questioning. I mean, the fact that that uh, that he was even asking, you know, that he was even asking these questions and, and seeking an answer for them. Uh, in many ways that, you know, that was kind of new and, and, and certainly anxiety-inducing. Well, this all came, too, about the time that uh, his mentor and a person he admired very much, Hans von Bülow, who was also notoriously hard to get along right. with right. <laughs> and a little bit temperamental, right. uh, was his health was declining. Yes. And so Mahler is obviously watching this person that he has admired very much uh, slipping away right. and his life ebbing and certainly all of the things that Von Bülow had accomplished in his lifetime. You have to imagine that Mahler would be thinking of that too, even though he's talking in broader terms right. about the hero from his first symphony. Right. You almost have to wonder if he didn't have a little bit of Von Bülow in mind too, as he's writing this right. work and, and questioning. What, so what happens when the baton no longer right, you know, right. when it falls and the right. orchestra falls silent, what, what, where do you go from there? Right. And I think that, and I think his answer, which he would want to say, is like, is it this or is it this? And the answer is yes. That we're talking about like reality that sort of transcends any individual sort of type, and and that's really hard to explain to people without them getting like. And this is, I mean, this is the thing too that is is true of of much of the various holy scriptures, and also true of like the Iliad and Odyssey. Is like, well, yes, we're telling a story, and it's about this hero. And about what this hero did in this particular war, but really we're also talking about like the story of being a human being and the how human beings right. exactly how human beings react in certain situations, which is why it's so why these stories matter. It's of course Odyssey is a fascinating story, Iliad are fascinating stories, but why they're so culturally important is because they sort of provide these categories in which to sort of think about. And the same is true. Uh, of of so much ancient literature, and I think this is the kind of thing where I don't think Mahler didn't want to limit it in one sense, and Wagner really had the same ambitions, um, sometimes rather nefariously. But it it all all around, I mean, the, the idea is that you want to get at something bigger than maybe, uh, and you know. We, we had so much more that we wanted to play, but I, I see our time is running short. I'm, I'm going to give just a couple of tips for people who may not be, be you know, may not have had their, their, their Mahler experience or may not have been recently. One of them was, as we said before, 
keep in mind that he knew the symphonic tradition that we hear all the time at QCSO very well. Um, Hans von Bülow, in fact, you know, premiered a fair number of Brahms symphonies mm-hmm. and many of the symphonies that we would know from the latter half of the uh, 19th century. So, so he's very intimately connected with music that we hear all the time. And a, a word about duration, you know, I mean, it's long. It's a long piece. But, you know, I, I encourage people to think of it like a movie. As a movie, it's not particularly long. I mean, I don't know. Tempos, this is the kind of thing where tempo change is going to make a big difference. But you're going to be sitting for more than an hour. But it's, it's you know, no one thinks twice about sitting through a 90-minute movie. Um, and he has at least as much to say as sort of any film would. So think if you think of it in terms of, of like a long-range narrative, it goes and it, it's just... It, and never expect it to be done, right? You just sort of expect it to be done at the right moment, and then it will be done. So it's, it, that's a really thing. You know, if you're not used to, to this lengthy of a piece of music, that's one tip. Another is the chords. As I say, his chords have just incredible and amazing effects. Like just, just like he, it's just he's, he's like a harmonic genius, and especially how he gets from one place to another. We were going to talk, but of course ran out of time about how he he in many ways uh, was one the fir- first German symphonist that really felt comfortable ending in a key he didn't begin in, right, right, and moving yeah. to these keys that like are like kind of very remotely related, but with through very direct means. So listen for the chords, and then the other thing, this is this would be you know all of that stuff is true for any Mahler piece, but w- once the fourth movement starts. You just, it, that's where we enter another world. The fourth movement, I, I just think th- there are no words. It's the, it's the alto solo. It's marked mezzo-soprano Adriana Zabala, who's fabulous and sang the solo homage from uh, Symphony Number no. 3 for us a couple years ago. That, that text is profound. I mean, my six-year-old knows it by heart, and she knows, oh, this is the part where that not very nice angel comes in. She doesn't know German, <laughs> but she knows. That I told her what the text was, um, and it's just so powerful and so subtle and so beautiful and so refined, the fourth movement, and then the fifth movement. You know, I mean, I, my, my wife, Kara, is, is playing, and well, she's subbing with the orchestra this weekend. She's playing second E-flat clarinet. E-flat clarinet's a little baby clarinet that's kind of like a toy, <laughs> I like to call it, you know. Uh, it's, and, and she's a small person, so it's, it's you know, she, she likes playing E-flat. And, uh, but she said, she emailed me this afternoon. She hadn't listened to a recording of the last movement for a while, but she wanted to, you know, to prepare for rehearsal. And, you know, we have a busy house, lots of kids, everybody's running around, lots of appointments, lots of things to do. And she said, she's like, I just, I could not play the recording of the last movement of Mahler 5 without crying. I could not, she's like, I couldn't, and, and again, this is not, this is not somebody who's like off on some like monastic retreat or something. I mean, this is in the midst of a crazy daily life. This incredibly powerful, transforming music, that's because that's, you know, spoiler alert, that's when the chorus comes in. So lots of things happen in the first three movements, and they're beautiful things. You've got your funeral march, you've got your, you know, your Austrian landler, and then you've got the scherzo, which we didn't have time to go into. But they're, they're just amazing, and, and like by themselves would, you know, he finished the first three first, and they really form a unit in themselves. But something truly 
otherworldly and miraculous and powerful happens once that fourth movement starts. I just think there's some sort of metaphysical reality that happens <laughs> with, when Urlik starts, and from yeah. there on out, it's just it, it, there's there is no experience. Like, I, I like totally agree with you on that, Jacob. Uh, it becomes transcendent yes. after that fourth movement. It's it's a it's a lovely but very symphonic work, full of surprises. Yep, you can kind of put however your feelings are. As this goes along, where as you mentioned, as he, he, we're looking at the funeral rites, then we're maybe looking back on the life of the person in fond memories, fond memories and, and then we're maybe getting to the part of questioning uh, what is, is it life all so meaningless? Right. Right? The scherzo is, is, is supposed it just to be void, right? <laughs> and right. then the fourth movement comes in, and you are never the same again. No. And then in the fifth movement, when you hear to rise, to rise, right. oh, well, yeah. Right. We, we don't want to give away right. exactly. too many spoilers. Right. Exactly. you got to exactly. go see this you work. You really do, absolutely. <laughs> so, Jacob Banks, thank you again for another edition of Music 101 on Perspective this afternoon. Jacob has been breaking down the Mahler Second Symphony, the Resurrection Symphony. It was written between 1888 and 1894, and this will be the work that will be closing out the Quad City Symphony Orchestra's 2016 uh, season, masterwork season. So the last work, uh, Quad City Choral Arts will be performing along with members of the Handel Oratorio Society. Uh, you'll also hear the soloist Lena Kaufman, Adriana Zabala. It's going to be simply magical.